Heavenly Father, this house is your house, but it's really just a place for us to come together and together pray and sing and worship and give and recognize that you are present to recenter to um, to be challenged to um, to hear from you so Lord as we have gathered may we hear from you no matter what we do um, as we have spoken allow us now to just be in your presence and have your spirit speaking to us that we might know Jesus a little bit better, that we might live a little bit better, that we might love a little bit better, not because you expect it of us, but because you empower us to do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings this morning. There's a, there's a, by the way, there's a little insert in the bulletin besides the ladies thing about the kings of Judah and Israel. Um, as we get into the house of David, um, that's a little tool that I've, I've, um, I, I put together years ago and I stick it in anytime I cover this just to give you a sense of the time frame of everything that's going on um, in the house of David. So speaking of the house of David... <clears throat> Y'all are familiar with the Scottish game. Because because the Scots can't invent a game that's played in one room. Instead, my Scottish ancestors were out shepherding. I do have Scottish ancestors, by the way. I'm part Scottish, a very, very small part. Probably Scottish Vikings, if I'm being honest. Um, but uh, you guys can think about that for a minute. Uh, but um, golf is one of the most frustrating walks in the world. It is. It is. I refer to playing golf as as a a walk interrupted by an annoying game. Um, I'm terrible at golf, uh, but uh, my friend Sean is not terrible at golf, so I want to invite him to come up. You can just tell, Sean. Sean knows what he's doing when it comes to golf. He even has the belt. <laughs> yeah, I mean he is attired. He knows the deal. So um, I'm gonna grab I'm gonna grab this mic for Sean. Not that he's gonna need it a ton, but we want to talk. I want to talk just very briefly about the difference between someone who owns golf clubs and someone who plays golf. So, Sean, I'm going to talk about where I got my clubs, and then why don't you share where you got your clubs. You can bring them up, up with you, by the way, if you want. All right. You can already tell. He actually cleans his clubs. Mine have blood on them. from Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, I'm left-handed. Um, I played golf right-handed most of my life. And then one day it occurred to me that maybe I needed left-handed clubs. But I'm also incredibly, um, well, I'm going to use the word aggressively frugal. I don't spend money on stuff that I'm not going to use all the time. So one day I put it on Facebook. I said, I need left-handed clubs. 
And a female coworker from Putnam Investments from when I was young said, I have a set of left-handed women's clubs. Okay. <laughs> so I play golf with a set of left-handed women's clubs. And they are still too long for me. Uh, they're about they're about 40 years old now. I do have one really nice uh, club, my driver, which Ray Ray uh, Barry looked at when he was up there, and he goes, "Do you ever clean this?" And I said, "No." Um, the dirt makes it more aerodynamic. Uh, but uh, um, yeah. So other than this, because Matt Birch and some of you may remember Matt Birch, he decided he wanted to try to to drive the ball left-handed at a driving range and knock the head off of my driver. So he felt bad and bought me a new one. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's where my clubs came from. Where do your clubs come from, Sean? Um, well, I <laughs> don't get me wrong, I didn't spend a whole lot of money on it, but uh, I went to a golf store, actually, for starters, um, and uh, they fitted me a little bit. Um, I will say my irons are older than I am. They're from 1996, but they fit my swing well, apparently. Um, and then the rest has just kind of been accumulated over time. I got the bag on sale at a golf shop. Um, so yeah. So he spent more than me. So here's the thing. I have to, okay, take a club out so I can remember what right-handed looks like. Did you get grip the glove. Which one is on top? Yeah, I'm very good at this. All right, there we go. All right, so one of the very interesting things about golf. Wait, hold on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One of the very interesting things about golf is that you can't just play golf. You, you, you cannot just do what I do, which is literally Sean calls me and he goes, hey, it's really nice out this Sunday afternoon. Do you want to go play golf? And I go, okay. So here's the thing, right? So now these are all wiffle balls, so they're not going to hurt anybody. Didn't tell the insurance guy about this. Um, so I want you to, I want you to, we should probably shouldn't do that. I should probably. <laughs> I'll do it sideways. It'll be easier. That way you guys can see. So, so here's the thing, right? So, so when you play golf, right? No, I don't need that. I'm not going to hit it. I'm not going to actually hit it. I thought about it, but the insurance liability is too much. So, so when you're playing golf, right, what's the most important thing? Golfers, what's the most important thing when you do, when you play golf? If anybody of you says drink, I... all right. What, what's the most important thing? Your grip. Your what? Watch the ball. Keep your head down. Right. All these things are important, right? Yeah. Know what you're doing. I would say that that's probably the first thing. So, I, this is my swing. Are you guys ready? Yeah. yeah clear that. All right, so now Sean's swing. And you're not an expert? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. That would be good. It's okay. The carpet's built for this. So, so let's, let's talk about a few things that are different between Sean and me.
said that. That's true. By the way, I got to tell you guys, I met the pastor of a church in the area this past week, and the first thing he said to me, he said, how long you lived in New Hampshire? I said, I moved here in 1998. He looks at me and goes, that's the year I was born. Thanks. Anyways, um, so, so uh, one, of the, one of the big differences, there's surf, superficial differences to the way that Sean and I play, all right? Um, but there's also, there are actual mental differences between the way we play, all right? What's the most important thing about the swing? The most important thing about the swing? I mean, someone said keeping your head down. Um, I would definitely say that is true, but I think that following through, making sure that you don't just punch it, uh, you can actually follow through the swing, have good form, and stay on balance. Form, balance, focus, follow through. All right. Because one of the things, you notice that what I do, and I, I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to change this, and Ray, Ray Berry has watched a video of me swing, and he knows this is, I check myself at the end of my swing. I do it all the time. I get to the bottom of my swing and I go, which is absolutely the total wrong thing to do. All right, you're supposed to swing all the way through. You know, it's supposed to come all the way around and, and all this. I can't get my hips to do that. Um, but a good golf swing, right? This is not a golf clinic. This is just an illustration. But a good, a good golf swing starts long before you swing. And it ends long after the ball has left the club, right? Because it's not about it's not about your intention. I intend to be a good golfer, right? I intend every time I get up to the tee, I say to Sean or Leo or whoever Greg Beal we were playing with, I'm like, I'm gonna mash this. I'm gonna say, this is gonna be straight down the fairway. It is going to be perfect. I mean, no golfer goes, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to slice it off into the sandbar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm really, what I'm really hoping, I happen to notice there's an outhouse over there. So if I could hit the ball over there and take a break, that would be fantastic. Everybody wants to put it down the fairway. Everybody has good intentions. But any of you that have ever golfed with somebody like me, all right, you know it's a terrible idea. So there, there's more than just the intentions. And we want to talk about that from a scriptural point. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much for coming up and letting me embarrass you a little bit. We're going to talk about, we want to talk about the temple and Solomon this morning. So we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8. Um, All the way back in 2 Samuel, the uh, David, King David, after he had solidified his kingdom, King David wanted to build a temple for his God. And he went to, um, in, in 2 Samuel 7, he actually goes to the prophet of God, Nathan. He says, I want to build a temple. And Nathan says, that's great. You want to build a house for the Lord? That's fantastic. Do whatever is in your heart. And so David, with the best of intentions... With the strongest of wills, he decides he's going to build a temple. And Nathan, with the best of intentions and the and and confidence that this is what that David was God's chosen, he says, "Yes, you go ahead and do it." And then when David gets home, God says to Nathan, "He said, you go back and tell David he can't do this. This is not for him to do." Now there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, David will eventually um, demonstrate some some poor judgment um, in his life decisions. Um, 
But David is also, he's a man of war. Um, he's a violent king. Um, David is a very violent person. Now, when you you read the stories of, you know, usually they kind of downplay that. Like if you watch a cartoon about David and Goliath, you know, you downplay the fact that David hurled a projectile at another human being's head, and then when the guy was on the ground, cut his head off. All right? That somehow never makes it into the cartoons. I don't know why. It's not in the children's Bibles. Um, and David it spends his life doing violence that is that is david that is that is what he does he is a he actually sings in one of the psalms you have strengthened my hands for war so there's a few reasons that david's not ready but when when david's son solomon becomes king one of the primary commitments that solomon has is he's going to build this house now at the end of the book of second samuel David purchases a piece of land called the threshing floor of Aruna. Um, if you were to look at a map of Jerusalem, this is the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. And that's ultimately the site of the temple. Today, when you see a picture of Jerusalem and you see the temple mound, um, that is actually an artificial um, uh, structure built around the fr- threshing floor of Aruna, the, 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 what's called Mount Zion. All right, or Mount Moriah, the, the top, um, the highest point in Jerusalem. Um, and during the Middle Ages, you, you actually, the, the, the Dome of the Rock that's on the top of that, when it was in good repair, you could see it for, for miles and miles and miles because it's so high. It's this high point. But Solomon um, stabilizes his kingdom. He puts everything together. And then um, he begins the work of constructing a temple. Uh, he, he begins it back in uh, chapter 5, 1 Kings chapter 5. I'm not going to, I'm going to get to chapter 8, but um, he begins it in chapter 5. He goes to Hiram, the king of Tyre, who had been one of the allies of his father. He says, okay, my dad made some arrangements for cedar trees and lumber and resources. Could you, could you send those down? And so Hiram, the king of Tyre, he takes the cedars of Lebanon, these massive trees, these massive um, trees. They cut them down. They float them down the Mediterranean coast to Israel, and then they're carried up to Jerusalem. In fact, he actually goes to Hiram later on, and he says to Hiram, he says, I need, I need this particular guy, this particular artisan to help us fashion all the metal that's going to be involved in the temple. And Hiram sends that down. And then Solomon sends out notices to the people of Israel all through the kingdom. And he says, we're going to be building this temple. And I need you to come. I need, uh, I need a tithe of men. Solomon is not fighting wars. So these men during the off season, basically what happens is they're all agricultural, right? So you plant your fields, you get them set, and then you've got basically the summer you can do something else. And if you're in war, you go fight wars. But Solomon says, you're going to come to Jerusalem. You're going to help us build the temple. They, um, thousands and thousands of people are sent. They're, they're people that are going to quarry stones. In chapter 17, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, says that the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house um, with dressed stones. This um, this is a very Egyptian way of building things. They're, they're, they're crafting the foundation. They're putting everything together. They're getting ready. 
And then in chapter 6 and verse 1, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, so this would have been like around Mayish, late spring, he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house that Solomon built, and it goes on and starts to describe it. Um, verse 7, when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Um, he goes through and he, he does this massive project, and it takes Solomon seven years. It takes him seven years to build this temple. Now, he then spends another uh, 13 years building his own house, and and sometimes people make a big deal about that. I was like, but then you find out Solomon has like a bajillion uh, um, concubines and wives, so he just had to keep adding on, right? Um, he builds the temple. It takes seven years. It's finished. Um, verse uh, Chapter 6 and verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the Lord was laid. And in the eleventh year, on the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, so the end of the summer, um, the beginning of the, the fall, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. And David, uh, or Solomon, builds this temple. And this temple may be the single most influential building that we have absolutely no archaeological evidence for in the world. And the reason I say that is this first temple stands until 586 B.C. It's leveled by the, the Babylonians. Um, Seventy years later, a group of Jews, uh, Jewish exiles are allowed to return. They rebuild, they build a new temple. That new temple lasts until about 1520 B.C. when Herod the Great then expands it into the great second temple complex, which lasts until 70 A.D. when it's destroyed. But that temple is the, the locus of all of the, the Jewish and Christian traditions that exist today. Jesus teaches in that temple. And that simple second temple only exists because the first temple existed. So, um, and so we have this temple that influences so much of history. It's such a significant, important um, structure. We have no record of it at all. But Solomon, when he's done, and, and we're going we're gonna to pick up in chapter 8, when he's done, he's done all the work. In chapter 8 and verse 1, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So um, this is kind of a, a slightly lower section, right below the what is today the Temple Mount. And they would have carried that up um, into the temple in the month of Ethanim, so the following year. And they all come up, and there's all this celebration, and the priests are singing, and the cloud of the presence of God descends. In verse, uh, verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there on Horeb. So the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon begins to talk. He says, and he, he speaks, uh, he says, the Lord has said that he would, 
excuse me, dwell in thick darkness. So, so this is why there's a cloud. God is present with us. And then in verse 22, he begins a prayer of dedication. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I, I want to read part of it. Verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping the covenants and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You have spoken with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it in this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the house on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord of O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and his plea. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servants pray before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And you say, what does it have to do with golf? (laughs) When Solomon... When, when David started the process of building this temple, this glorious construction, just a small kingdom on the backside of nowhere in the world, building a magnificent edifice for the one that they believe is the one true God. All of the intentions in the world were not enough to build a house that would bring glory to God. Um, All of the passion, all of the emotion, all of the desire, all of the songs, all of the effort, it was not enough. See, what what Solomon had to do is he had to follow through. He had to lay a foundation for what needed to be done. Not, not, not just walk up to the tee and go, let's build a temple. Whoosh. Let's just, let's just see what happens. How many of you live in a house that you think the architect did that? They're just like, hey, let's see what happens if we put a door here. Or, or um, haphazardly just building and doing whatever. Uh, or, or, hey, you know what? I'll be there. I'll be there uh, in a couple years. You just guys just get started without me. Do whatever you think is best, and we'll get the architect to come in later and, and see what we've got. Um, Solomon doesn't. Solomon doesn't just um, pray this after everything's just kind of fall. It's miraculous. It all just fell in circumstantially, and everything's great. In order for there to be a complete motion, a completion of the work that God had set 
for him. In order for him to be able to follow through and complete the project that God had laid before him, Solomon had to lay groundwork. He had to bring in the right resources. He had to have somebody take a look at the the land they were going to build it and survey it and say, how can we put this together? Um, They had to plan everything out so that the rocks could be quarried somewhere else and then brought there and put together perfectly. And I have really a really, really simple message today. You can't build something for the glory of God at the end of the process. You can't just say, well, I'll just do whatever until I get to the place where I'm going to finish and then I'll ask God to bless that. I'll ask God, after I've done all of my own stuff, then then I'll just ask God, you know, God will bless it and it will be fantastic. Solomon needed a stable foundation, a vision and a plan. He had to have all of the resources necessary to do the job over the course of seven years, including people and materials and money. He had to bring in the people that needed to be brought in to do the work. He had to um, think long term. He had to surrender the idea of a quick fix and an easy patch because he was dealing with something too big and too important to just wait to the end and hope that God blessed it. And if there is one thing that we as Christians do over and over and over again is we try to put a Jesus cap on top of a me project and say, well, God will bless it. God will forgive me for any of the mistakes I made along the way. It will make it work. It will be fine. Um, There's a, a, a glass door, a sliding glass door in the parsonage. Comes into the kitchen. Out of the sun porch that's not square in any way. On the one side of that door, the the molding comes right up against the the sheetrock, and it's perfect. On the other side, there is a three-inch gap that someone filled in by just cutting strips of paneling and shoving them in the space and hoping no one would notice. Ah, close enough. Telling a story, I was telling a story to somebody about a, a building in Manchester that I have to drive by twice a week where they built the steel frame and then they put wood framing on top of it and it is off by like two feet. There is this giant gap. Someone is just going to have a hole in their floor or they're just going to have a wall with the structure of the rest of that building. Just I don't know what they're going to do to get rid of this. And I keep waiting for some contractor to notice it and they never do. 
And they're going to get to the end of that project and they're going to go, oh, well, it's the best we could do now. Throw it in there, do the thing. When Solomon sat down and said, we're going to build the temple, he knew it was going to be a seven-year project. He knew what it was going to require to follow through on his commitment. Now here's something. He had to throw away some things that maybe other people thought were important to get that job done. He had to say, we can't do that. We're here on the temple. We're working on this. Well, Solomon, what about this? I don't have time for that. We're working on the temple. We've got this project we need to do. This thing is what God has intended us to do. He's equipped us to do it. He's given us the resources to do it. We need to follow through. Because all of the intentions in the world, without the whole swing, without planning all the way through, keeping your eye down, all the way through that follow through, all of the good intentions of the world in the world without proper planning and thought and process and and priorities sometimes it works out do you really want to have your spiritual life defined by sometimes it works out do you really want to build a house that maybe it'll work out hopefully wouldn't it be great to hang our entire eternal destiny on? Eh. When Solomon sits down to do this job, it is from beginning to end. Because follow through is the result of preparation and process. Completing what God puts in front of us, it's, it's, it's not independent of every other thing that comes up before it. Every other step, every other process. And here's the thing. It, it follow through. Getting, doing what God calls us to do is not about how we finish. It was, it was close enough. It was good enough. How many of you decided to do something at some point with someone younger than you that you used to be really good at and you figured you'd just be able to do it? Like, how many of you are runners? Uh, that's what I thought. Um, you know, when I was young, I, I'm sure you all can appreciate this. I didn't have asthma or anything. When I was young, apparently, I could just run forever. Like, I mean, I, I think about it. I'm like, as a kid, I literally, like, as soon as I got up, finished with my schoolwork, was running, bouncing off of things for like eight, nine hours until my mom called me into dinner. I'd never, you know, just basically dropped exhausted on the floor and they carried me, dropped me in my bed. And I was, you know, I just ran and ran and ran. And, and I remember, I remember at one point I could run six miles and I wasn't the fastest guy in the world because look at me, but, um, but I, I could do this. And then one day I was teaching um, at a Christian school and one of the guys said, Mr. DeVitro, um, you know, you should run with us. And I said, yeah, not a problem. I got out and started running and then proceeded to throw up my lunch. Because I, 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 you know, I hadn't planned. I hadn't worked the process. I, I, I was falling apart. Listen, and, and I, this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very pointed <laughs> with this. You can't expect the end result 
of the, the swings you're taking in life to be in alignment with what God is intending if you don't bring everything else before it into alignment. Jesus, I hope my kids turn out good. I just don't have time to teach them about the Bible, pray with them, spend time with them. Gee, I, I hope my marriage works out, um, but I, I don't have the time to prioritize stuff like figuring out my problems. Gee, I, I hope, I hope my, my ministry life works out. I, I, really hope that, I really hope our kids in our church are encouraged to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, I hope that happens, but I have absolutely no intention of participating in the process. I'm just waiting for the end goal. As long as the end goal works out, that's great. You have any idea how many times, as a Christian school teacher, I was blamed for the shortcomings of the children that were in my class? Well, why do we think, why did we send our kid to Christian school if you're not going to do the things we're not doing at home? There's a reason I'm not a Christian school teacher anymore. When you say that to parents, they don't like that. I was like, you know that that's your job, not mine. It's, it's your job to parent your kid, not me. Um, you know, you can't, we, we have to do this. What's the deal? Where am I going with this? Because I'm kind of all over the place. Okay? Where, what does God have for you to do? What's the temple that he is building through you. Now, if you know that, or you have a hint about that, what is required for you to do that and finish and follow through? And then the hard question, why aren't you doing that? Say, oh, I want to be a pastor. I'm already over time. I'm just going to tell you this. I want to be a pastor. Eric, tell me the shortcuts to be able to be a good pastor. Okay, spend a decade or so making stupid decisions. Do the wrong thing a lot so you learn how to do the right thing more often. You say, I want to be a public speaker. Teach me how to be a public speaker. How do you do it? Thousands and thousands of hours of doing it badly to occasionally do it better. There are no shortcuts to following through to finishing the work that God has given to you. There's a process. There's priorities. Don't tell me you value something. Don't tell me don't tell me that you want to bring glory to the Lord in fill in the blank. If you're not willing to look at everything that's required to do that, to make the right preparations so that you can finish and follow through. We we, we have too big of a responsibility as followers of Christ, as workers in the ministry of the gospel, to be 
casual about the temple that God is building. To just hope that somewhere along the line somebody will come along and sprinkle fairy dust on it and it'll fix it. Follow through isn't how you finish. It's knowing where you're going, making all the necessary preparations, going through the process, and then seeing it completed. I'm not sure if that made any sense, but I'm going to go ahead and pray. And this will be a lesson to me. Always put the illustration last. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to work well, to finish well. Our, our heart, our desire, our, our burning passions for you are not enough on their own. We need your hand on us. We need your wisdom to see what we need to do to finish what you've called us to do. Because ultimately we're not building something to contain and control we're building something to meet you, to know you, to have others know you. It's too important. It's too important for us to treat it casually, to throw it away, to not build the skills and the resources we need to do it right. Help us in our families, in our work, in our lives, in our church. To build the temple, a place where we meet you, where you hear us, whatever that is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and be the church of God.